What is up, everybody? Welcome to Sitting with Sean, episode number 41, brought to you by the Antisocial Network. Today, we have a very special guest. I'm actually very excited about this guest. We got Lady J. How you doing, Lady J? Uh, thank you for having me. Ah. I'm 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 really excited. I'm really excited. I seen you post up something in uh and in, in one of the pages. I was like, I'd like to have her on there. I'd like to have her on the show and 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 um, <laughs> share her experience, strength, and hope with everybody. Uh, you're very influential. Um, so would you like oh, to go thank ahead you. and give? I appreciate a... that. Sorry, sorry about that. Would you like to give a formal introduction <laughs> of yourself? Well. Uh, you know, I tell everyone before I'm anything, I am a servant. I love to serve people. So I am a community servant leader. I am an author, a speaker, a serial entrepreneur. Uh, I have been dubbed an upcoming media mogul. <laughs> and I am what's known as the master bounce backologist, aka the bounce back queen. So when people get to know my story, then they understand why. I have been dubbed that. <laughs> so uh, I have repeatedly had to bounce back from seemingly impossible, I'll say life crushing things that would probably kill just about anybody. So, and aside from that, I mean, I'm a mother, you know, for children and yeah, I'm just, I'm just a servant. I love to, to use my life story, my resources, my education, my platforms to support, inspire, and help others. That is, that's amazing. Yeah. When I seen back, 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 back bounce back, ologist, I was like, I'm interested. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm interested. What, what does that even mean? But I understand. Yes. The master bounce back, ologist, someone who has mastered the art of, I'll say, activating their resilience on repeat of bouncing back repeatedly from seemingly impossible circumstances and not just coping because a lot of people tend to cope, which means you actually have accepted where you are mentally, emotionally, um, physically, and you're just coexisting with it versus actually overcoming it and living life. So it's possible. I feel like in this period of my life I'm in right now, I'm in that bounce backology because I just went through something that was like pretty much soul crushing and I've gotten to that point where I'm like, okay, I need to become a better version of myself than I was yesterday, last week, mm -hmm. a month before. Right. So bringing that up, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm actually in the process of, so I've created a whole program uh, for it, teaching people how to do that, whether it's from business, whether it's personal, you know, mental, emotional, all of that, even physical. Cause I've had to do it um, myself numerous times, but um, God, it, God gave me that while I was in rehab the, over these last two and a half years <clears throat> after suffering the rupture brain aneurysm. So it, it was already a program that I had already been doing with uh, since 2015 with uh, at-risk youth and families. And then told me to change it to that, to that name. So yeah, bounce back ology. I am actually a, psychology major <laughs> i am finishing up my master's i already have a bachelor's in psychology and so i wanted to create or or yeah, i wanted to create a different form of not necessarily psychology but psychology mixed with 
quite a few other things. It, it's more of a, like a holistic type thing. So uh, concept, if you will. A more innovative approach to, to, yes. to care. Yeah, and yes. it's more interactive too. Very interactive. And it makes the process of transformation not be so, we know it's painful. We know it's gonna be work, but make it not so where you're just focused more on the pain and how long it's gonna take, but actually focused on the goals and being excited about reaching what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Absolutely. And one of the things I see about people who set goals is they look at the goals. I mean, they don't necessarily use the smart goals when they use the smart goals and pretty, they're pretty successful. But when they don't use the smart goals, they set super unattainable things. Like they're like, I want to be the president of the United States, but you got no qualifications to do so. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. And so Absolutely. it makes it, it makes it impossible for them to achieve goals. And then they're just automatically knocked down to the ground. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, you're from Indianapolis, yeah? Yes, I am born and raised in Indianapolis. What is and life I still like reside there? here. I have never been there. What is life like? There? Uh, well, it's a big city. I live, I live in the capital city of Indiana. So mm-hmm. it is fast paced. <laughs> and it uh, there's a lot to do. We host a lot of national events. So also it's very, we get all the weather here. So we're, we're called the crossroads of, you know, the United States because everybody passes through here to get to from one side of the nation to the other or going up or down. So, but it is, it's cold right now, of course, because it's winter. So we get the snow, we get tornadoes, we get hail, we mm. get rain, we get everything. So yeah, and sometimes we can get all the seasons in one day or a week. That's, <laughs> so literally, that's wild. That is wild. Yeah. Are you are you a football fan? Not really. I do have my favorite place. I don't really watch football like that. Mm. Um, I, now I am familiar with football. I have watched it in the past. One because I have boys, so I have two boys, <laughs> and they play football. So I'm, I'm definitely at their games, rooting them on. So I understand it a little bit. I don't understand all of it, but I know what a touchdown. <laughs> and when somebody kicks a good goal, you know, a fumble and interception. That's about all I can tell you. But <laughs> everything <laughs> but outside of the players. That's awesome. Who are some of your favorite <laughs> players? Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning is number one on my list. I love Peyton Manning. And of course, he started here at the Colts, uh, uh, the Indianapolis Colts. Um, also, I like Tom Brady too. Yeah. So I like Tom Brady. Him and, and Peyton Manning, I would say, have to be my favorite. When I was younger, it was Deion Sanders. Mm. But I will say my favorite team has always been the Colts. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wasn't always a fan of Tom Brady. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a fan of Tom Brady, but I have a lot of respect for what he's done for football. And I'm not even a big football fan. <laughs> My dad is a bigger football <laughs> fan than I am. He he we we watch we watch the games on every Sunday and if his Cowboys lose, he gets angry, stomps away, and I'm like, I don't get it. <laughs> I just, I don't it's, too, it's too emotional. Men put a lot of their emotions into that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Man, right. I don't understand that, but hey. 
you put a lot of emotions into things you cannot control. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Just calm down, pump the brakes. Yeah. So good. <laughs> yes. It's not that serious. No, <sighs> not at all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. So let's go ahead and, and dive into it. What was it like in your active addiction? Oh, man. If I had, let's see, if I had to describe that, I would say it was extremely numbing. It was numbing. It was full of darkness. <clears throat> And it just seemed like a never endless pit, I would say. Um, you know, I I became addicted after being uh, abandoned by both parents. And um, I grew up without a father, you know, and <clears throat> my mother decided she just didn't want to be a mother anymore. And... I was sexually abused and assaulted several times, you know, as a child and throughout my teenage years um, by different people. I was even kidnapped at one point and yeah, kidnapped walking home from work one night. And so pills became my addiction first. So I was addicted to Vicodin. It was a very strong narcotic and I was actually prescribed that due to a severe case of endometriosis. I was, you know, told that I wouldn't be able to have children. And um, I got a his I had to get a laparoscopy at the age of 15. They wanted to actually give me hysterectomy at 14. So that's how bad it was. Wow. Um, it started to <clears throat> attach and grow to certain organs and things of that sort. And so it can be a very debilitating uh, condition and it is extremely painful. It's worse than childbirth. I mean, extremely painful. It is crippling. And also, it can also lead to like ovarian cancer and things of that sort. So I started using the Vicodin to then, I'll say, deal with my other issues. <laughs> yeah. So being uh, very depressed and suicidal, you know, I tried to commit suicide three times as a teenager. Um. Of course, each time is what it was unsuccessful. But right. yes, me too. And also, once I started to realize that that wasn't really doing the trick, I think it was a combination between that and the constant spiral downward and abuse. Then I started being addicted to sex. And I think that came from you know, my, my innocence being taken away from me and then me constantly being sexually abused and assaulted. So then I started to think that that was the way people showed love or that's all I deserved. And then I was told by my parent that, you know, that's all I would ever be good for. And I would, you know, nobody would ever really want me or nobody would love me and, you know, and so I believed that. And then sex became a, a drug within itself. And I was addicted to I was addicted to Vicodin from the age of 16 to 19 and a half. And sex was an addiction for quite some time. That was a struggle. 
And if people, and I know a lot of people say, oh, you can't be addicted to sex. Oh, you can be addicted to just about anything. Anything that you use to cope with something and then you gotta have it all the time, <laughs> you know, to make you feel better or make you feel something, that's an addiction, you know? Yeah. So, and thank God that I never, I, I wasn't the type of person where I would have sex with strangers. I think the component of me being sexually assaulted and abused didn't allow me to do be able to do that. You know, it was always with somebody that I knew or somebody that I was talking to or just playing around with or whatever the case may be. But it, it was multiple people, you know, mm -hmm. and so I thank God that I was kept from, you know, STDs and, and AIDS and, and, you know, things of that sort. Um, because most people, you know, aren't extended that level of grace. So, so yeah, it was, it was extremely, extremely dark. It was, it was like a never ending pit. And I would literally find myself crying after the fact, you know, saying, I don't want to be like this, you know, I don't want to do this, but it, it was all I, it, it was all I knew. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, we use we use substances or actions or anything really just to just to you know kind of kind of numb that that pain that we felt. And you you said it earlier that you know that phase in your life was the numbing portion of it, that it was mm -hmm. you know taken away from the pain that you felt. And um, the one thing I felt when I was going through that was numb, right? I enjoyed mm -hmm. the feeling of not having to feel those emotions, and mm -hmm. that's why like now. I don't take any medication because I don't want to feel that. I want to feel what I really feel and, and, and enter, you know, invite those feelings and those emotions in. Um, what, what about the, the, that point in your life was really the deciding factor that this is how I'm going to live my life until I feel like I'm ready to, to be done. I think for me, it was just, I didn't have anybody to show me or teach me or help me. When I was 11, and that was the first time that I was ever molested. And I, it happened at a friend, my best friend's house. Um, that really triggered like everything. Aside from me <clears throat> being born into complete chaos and dysfunction, I mean, my house was a war zone. Like my father, my mother left my father when I was five, but and then after that, I didn't have a father anymore. He he just disappeared. <clears throat> but <clears throat> I was born into drug addiction and alcoholism. Both of my parents were on cocaine. My father was on cocaine from middle school up until now. So uh, I was born into drug addiction. Everybody on his side has been addicted to drugs. People on my other side have been addicted to drugs. Um, alcoholism. So it's what I saw a lot of. And <clears throat> I think that once <clears throat> the encounter happened at 11 years old and my mother was called and the police were called and I was told that it was my fault, that I think tri triggered something in me. I was told that by my mom and the person that that came with her. That was the moment that I realized that I wouldn't, I was never going to be like protected. Yeah. And so I used to use school first as a way of an of escape. So that became like my fantasy world. You know, I could be 
the I was a quote unquote superstar at school, if you would. <laughs> so I was a straight A yeah. student. You know, I was one of the most popular people in school, you know, because I was um, in show choir. I was the lead singer. I was always in the newspaper and all sort of the kind of stuff. So it was like a whole world away from different from home. So I could pretend to be, even though that was me, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the full me. If that yeah, makes sense. nobody, yeah, nobody knew what was going on. So I mean, I was, you know, track star, and I was in a bunch of extracurricular activities, whatever I could do to stay away from home, as much as I could. But then I had the responsibility too of two younger, two younger siblings, and I actually became like a mother type figure to them. And um, because you know, combing their hair, helping them with homework. You know, at one point, my mother was working two jobs, to take care of. You know, she was a single parent, so. I think that after that happened and uh, there being a a serious change in our home life when my mother brought a violent registered sex offender into the home and she began dating him and marrying him, that is when like all hell broke loose and yeah, and my life just completely fell apart. So I had to figure out a way to, I started Deciding, I decided on that drug on Vicodin after I had tried to commit suicide three times. When I kept failing at killing myself, that frustrated me even more because I didn't know how to deal with the pain. Nobody was, I wasn't allowed to talk about things. You know, nobody provided me with any help or anything. So, and at the same time, I'm trying to protect you know, my siblings and, you know, voice what's going on, what's happening and nobody's listening. So I became really frustrated. So I had to figure out a way on how to just not feel. And that's what I did. I remember I stayed on the couch, I think one time for like three days, just popping the pills every so every, you know, few hours. Viking is very strong. So you have to be very careful about how much you take because it can stop your heart like that. You know, um, but it keeps you sleep. So it kept me in sleep mode. And for three days, I, I don't think I only got up to use the bathroom. I didn't get up to wash. I was. Uh, I'm sorry. It's OK. At that point, I was staying with a with a cousin. So she had um, found me. My mother put me out when I was 15. I became homeless. I was a homeless teenager. And so I've been on my own since I was 15 years old. And um, I was at her house and, you know, they ended up calling my mother um, because she hadn't, she hadn't called. She didn't know if I was alive or dead or anything. <laughs> and, you know, so once she put me out, that was it. She literally just washed her hands of me. But <clears throat> at that point, they didn't have all the information that they needed to like take me to a hospital or something like that. So she had to meet them there. So they was like, you know, she's been on this couch for three days, but I didn't tell them what I was doing. You know, I had to tell the doctor and because of my age, 16 at that time, they didn't have to do, you know, um, they didn't have to tell them, you know, what was going on. But, uh, so yeah, that's when I decided when I was about 16 years old, that's when I decided I'm, I need to do something because this is not working. And so Viking was my choice and it kept me in sleep mode. And that's what I did. I, if I was asleep, then I didn't have to feel anything. I didn't have to think about anything. It wasn't to get high. It was just to feel nothing. 
Yeah. Yeah. That, that fight or flight that you constantly live in, you know, especially in a chaotic environment that can really just weigh you down and bear you down. And so, I mean, I understand completely, I understand yeah. completely, especially that one, just not wanting to feel anything. That's, yeah. that's rough. So when did it change yeah. from, from Vicodin to, to sex as an addiction? I would have to say, so <clears throat> Um, when I say this, some people, some people get it, some people don't. <laughs> yeah. So I think for a, a lot of my life, I had already given up. Like, like I said, I had been trying to kill myself a couple of times and did use a different method every single time. <clears throat> and <clears throat> I think that there was, it was like, I was still trying or moving forward or fighting on autopilot, if you will, it wasn't really me. So the only thing I can tell people is I, I'm a, I'm a believer in God. I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm, a, I'm not um, ashamed about that, you know? Yeah. And I think that um, the things that he allowed, I can, I understand now why he allowed it. But then I didn't know that that was him like carrying me and, and keeping me through that because he had a plan for my life. So <clears throat> When that was not working, and then when I got tired of feeling numb, it was like I tried to move forward, but I didn't know how to move forward. So I was just coping. Mm -hmm. And when I was uh, kidnapped at 16 and raped, it was kind of like I tell everybody, that's the night that the little girl in me completely died. So she was hanging on by a thread, you know, up to that point. And then that's when... Yeah, just completely died. I did I did not utter a word about what happened to me. But when my when I got to my cousin's house and my aunt saw, you know, my clothes and I was crying and I wouldn't she she was asking me what happened to you? Where have you been? You know, and I I couldn't tell her cuz in my mind I was taught that things like that are my fault. And the fact that I got into a car with a stranger for the first time ever in my life who had other young ladies in the car said that they were his daughters. You know, he's acting like a concerned parent. It's too late for you to be out here by yourself. And I'm thinking it's okay. And it, I don't even know how I black out after I remember every single thing. I mean, the way he looked, his scent, what I had on, everything that happened to me up until the point that I was able to like put my clothes on after that. I don't know what happened to me. I don't know how I made it home. I don't know. I have no clue on what happened. And after that moment, I think that's when I decided that I would start because I couldn't share that with anybody. And I had already stopped talking about everything else that happened to me. That's when I thought that, okay, I want to I need to feel something like I want to feel cared for or loved because I don't know what that's like, you know? So sex became a replacement for that in order for me to feel that every day. That's what I did. Mm-hmm. So, and it was a, you know, you, you, you take a few small steps, you know, and then you get knocked back 10 steps. And then you take a few small steps and then you get knocked back 10 steps. So <laughs> you're in this constant, you know, c- circle or cycle of, you know, trying to take a step to figure out, you know, what you need to do to come out of that or to stop this. And then 
that doesn't work. So you, you're right back to where you started. <laughs> you try again. So that's how that was. And that's, I think that's what, that's what triggered that piece. Um, because there were things that he did to me and things that he made me do that I had never done. I should have never known or been exposed to as a child, like I said. Um, and, you know, having my virginity taken from me at 15, um, I was, was crushing within itself just because the way I was raised and the way I was taught. I, be, I honestly believe that if that had never happened to me, I would have kept myself until marriage. Um, because, uh, I mean, your innocence as a girl, you know, everything, even young men too. But um, that that's just everything that's just taken, you know, taken from you. So I didn't have a choice in that. Yeah, it's going, it, it went from wanting to feel numb to wanting to feel alive. Uh, yeah. 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 What? So, so when you said you didn't talk about it, was that was it that feeling of like the guilt and shame that you feel in addiction um, that kind of prevented you from talking about it? No, uh, I think that the the act within itself. So when I entered into the home, because I, I wanted to sit in the car, it's like you know, let me just drop them off real quick at home and. And uh, because it's late and then I'll go ahead and take you home. But the moment he asked me to get out the truck, I'm thinking to myself, why am I getting out if you're just taking them in there? You know, Uh, but I I went in and the moment that he locked the door behind me, that's when I knew that something is wrong. And so I felt like a coward because either because I gave in to whatever was going to happen to me, I thought, okay. If I try to run or go around him, he's probably going to kill me. But if I, maybe if I do what he says, he might let he might let me go, you know. So I kind of felt like a coward in that sense that I didn't fight. And I know everybody says, "Well, that's not your fault. You was a child. You you know, it wasn't a coward move." And that's how I know. In looking at other people's stories, that's how a lot of people stayed, you know, alive. Even people that. <laughs> actually cross paths with serial rapist killers, you know? Um, And so that part, that piece, along with the fact that I got into the car after saying no and then circling back and I got into the car anyway, I felt like it was my fault. Yeah. One, it was already implanted in me when I was 11. (laughs) Then, so everything that transpired after that, no matter how it happened, who it was, that's what I thought. And this time, oh, it's definitely my fault. I'm going to get in trouble because, you know, with my cousin or with my aunt because I got into the car, you know. And so I didn't say anything to anybody. And I just felt so, I, I, I literally, everything in me died. Like at that point, I, I literally dropped out of every extracurricular activity. Nobody noticed. I stopped singing. I stopped running track. I stopped student count. I literally dropped out of everything. I I became very reserved and pretended in front of like my aunt and, and cousin and things of that sort. And then at some point I decided then, so I went from one end of the spectrum all the way to the other end. I was extremely reserved, extremely quiet. And then I became extremely promiscuous and just, then I was like, oh, this makes me feel good. Like, this is better than the Vicodin. So, and I'm feeling something, but it's not pain. So, you know, and 
they they must somebody you know this person must like me they must love me so i'm gonna do this (laughs) and so that was my way of coping yeah definitely you know and you you talked about like you know kind of the mask that you wore at school um Mm -hmm. to prevent other people from knowing I I used to do that a lot too. School was my favorite place, and it wasn't because I enjoyed being at school. Is I didn't have to be at home, mm-hmm. and so I involved myself in a lot of different things. I was in the marching band. I loved playing music. You know, I'd volunteer to stay. You know, to work on people's homework so that I didn't have to worry about going home. You know, I went. Right. I, I worked when I was able to work, and I would work these late hours so I wouldn't have to be home. So the limited mm-hmm. exposure of me being home was literally me stepping in the door. Hey, I'm home. Go to bed. And right. so that mask, that mask that we create to, you know, to kind of shelter ourselves from from that harm is, is pretty. It's pretty wild. And out of all my guests, you're the first person that has hit on the mask. Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely. Oh, it's like <laughs> it's like being two people. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm. I think. I think that in itself has made me really irritated with people that like lead double lives or pretend to be somebody that they're not. Cause I'm like, that takes way too much energy, yeah. <laughs> way too much energy. And so I'm a, I, who you see is what you get. I'm, I'm me. And when I'm, you know, doing business, if I'm around friends, if I'm around people, I don't know, I'm me. At all times, like there is no representative. You're not gonna meet a representative at all. I am the representative, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I am the I, army. I, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. That's awesome. So, what? At what point did you realize? Okay, this is not okay for me personally. I need. I need to change some things. Well, when I was seventeen. I met my first husband, but I was a very broken, very broken teenager. I, like I said, I hadn't dealt with anything, but he introduced me to this pastor at this church and they had this program called Victims to Victory. And it was like a 12 class program for people who had been sexually assaulted and abused. And it they also had classes for those who were abusers. So whether you were domestic violence or sexual assault. And that was my first step in going to that church. Shout out to Pastor Green, uh, Second Baptist, uh, now Purpose of Life Ministries, Andy Baptist, Indiana. Um, him and his wife really took me under their wing, and I had a father figure, you know, um, in him and a mother figure in her. And after hearing my story, they really helped me. So that was my first. Of course, that didn't undo the years of you know, depression, abandonment, you know, abuse and homelessness and addiction and just, oh, you know, trauma after trauma after trauma. It was, it was just a mess. And that helped me to want better or more for myself. And when I started to see the damage that it was causing to my siblings, um, that, made me realize that that's not how I wanted to live my life. So I knew my grandmother used to tell me all the time. She was the, she was the seed. I think that that kept me from becoming 
what everybody else in my family who had gone through those things and my siblings, how they live now. She was the, she was the, the seed, the, the number one person that, you know, instilled God into me and, and used to tell me, you know, how proud she was of me. She celebrated everything that I did, you know, um, she, she was my, she was my mother. She was my other mother. So, and <clears throat> that, that is what really made me realize that what I went through didn't necessarily mean that's who I was. It was just a circumstance or an experience because I was taking on the identity of everything that happened to me, not, you know, not exactly yeah. finding out who I was. So what happened to me became who I, who I was at that point. And <clears throat> that was the starting point. But I will say that, you know, when you start out and, and you are, and, and when God has a plan for your life, you know, the enemy will always dangle things in front of your face that you like, you know, <laughs> and yeah. things that may hold you back or set you back. And so my husband at the time, well, he became my husband, you know, we had two children and I really had no business being with him. One, I wasn't in a in a good state emotionally or mentally to even be in a relationship with anybody. My my um, reason, I would say, for entering into relationship because I wasn't even interested in him. I kept telling him, "No, I don't want to date you. I don't even like you." You know. <laughs> yeah, he kept <laughs> then, then we, He he was persistent. Okay, very persistent, and. Um, so we, we got married, but I missed all of the red flags with him. He he completely changed, did a 360 once we got married. And that was hell. I will say that was worse than all the things combined that happened to me when I was a kid all the way up until it was, that was trauma, you know, times a thousand. It, it, every type form of domestic violence you could think of, I experienced it. Mm. And what really triggered me deciding to really dig deep was when I tried to commit suicide for the last time in 2005. At the time, my children were six months and one year old. And I had, it was like I was, it was like I was high but I was like outside of myself. I could hear them crying. They were only a few feet away from me. They were screaming and crying. They probably had been doing that for hours. And I was just zoned completely out. And I was in an inconsolable state of sorrow. <clears throat> and I, I was isolated. I didn't have any form of communication with anybody. You know, he would leave for days on end. And I mean, he, he just treated me less than dirt less than dirt and I walked to a payphone at the corner of our where we lived at of our home and I called up his mentor and I said hey please come get my children I'm gonna slit my wrists and I don't want them in this house with a dead mother and the moment I put the knife to my wrist the police and the ambulance busted in the door and it was at on that day <clears throat> that I when I was laying in the psych ward at the hospital, <clears throat> it was like a, a small voice said, you keep trying this and I keep telling you no. And I knew it was God. <laughs> it's like, you've tried this so many times and I keep telling you no. 
<laughs> so, um, and then the question in my head was, do you really want to leave your children like this? Do you really want them to go through everything that you went through? Do you really want them to leave them with this person? And the answer was no. So then they became my will or reason to live. And I haven't had any suicidal thoughts since then, since that point. And I, I literally decided um, that I was going to be the exception to my environment. I was going to be the exception. And even if I had to do it by myself, I didn't care how long it took, how hard it was. I was going to do it. And it took years. I was like, <laughs> some years to unpack all of that and, you know, and realize that who I am and who I was to become, you know, had nothing to do with any or everybody that had, you know, played a hand in anything negative in my life, even including my parents, understanding that my purpose was not tied to them, you know, so that those are the things that made me decide I can't continue to live like this. I've had a few attempts in my life and the last one was my my eye opener that I need to stop just just need to stop because it's not going to happen. Um mm-hmm. I justified everything in my head literally. Um I was sitting there before I made the attempt and questions kept spiraling through my head. What are you going to you know what's going to happen with your daughter? Well, she has a, a mother and a stepfather that love and care about her. She doesn't need me. You know, what about all these, you know, I, I'm a veteran, you know, what about the sir, the soldiers that work for you? How are they going to feel? You know, and, and I would be like, oh, there's a million of me. Don't worry about me. There's a million of me. I'll be fine. They'll be okay. And just all the things like the justification of like pushing everything away, everybody away. And then that's when I made the action. I said, I have nothing left to live for. Like, I don't mm-hmm. care. I don't care at this point. I'd been on the brink of like, like living or dying for a while, you know, but mm-hmm. I was definitely at the point where I said, I just, I, I want the pain to be over because I can't handle it anymore. And right. I put my truck, I put my truck in a tree at 70 miles an hour. When I woke up in the hospital, I was like, why, <laughs> like, yeah. why, why me? Yeah. Right. Like what, yeah. why did did you just choose not to not to help me out today? I just needed that little nudge. If the engine block would have been like that far to the left, I would have been okay. But I'm right. actually really grateful that I did, that I didn't die because I wouldn't be able to hear inspirational stories from you. Yes, yes. I I think that you know when people talk about things like suicide, depression, addiction. They are such taboo topics. People don't want to, they, they either talk about it in a very vague or broad way, or they tend to shun from that and act like it never happened. But I think that that is probably the worst thing that you could do. And I say that because now I understand that everything that happened to me, why it may not have been fair, it was necessary and people think I'm crazy when I say that it was necessary because in order for God to put, to help other people, to put people in other people's lives, to help them get from point A to point B, somebody has to go through something so that they can be a blueprint or, you know, a, a, I'll say a manifestation of what is possible on the other side. Nobody, most people are, are, I want to see it first before I believe it. 
you know, that's how a lot of us are. A lot of people don't even know what it is to really like walk in faith. So if nobody ever goes through it, there is no blueprint. There is no, well, how do you know? Well, I can prove it to you because you're looking at it, you know? <laughs> so, um, and, and I think if more people were, would be more, you know, open and honest about those things, a lot more people would um, be saved from that. And there could be a lot of other preventative measures because suicide is 100% preventable. Addiction is as well. But you have to be you have to know the avenues and the people, you know, to be connected to in order to do that. And I think that, you know, being a psychology major, I've gotten into a couple of debates, you know, throughout these years because psychology is needed. And I love to understand how people's brains work, because, like I said, I have two other siblings. We all grew up in the same type of environment, but we all live three totally different lives. It affects everybody in a different way. And so. But with that, a lot of therapy practices or psychiatrists, psychologists, because a lot of them have not lived the lives of the people that they treat, it's not as effective. And so um, when yeah. it comes to mental health, your mentality is tied to your spirit as well. If your if your mental and your spirit is wrong or your emotions are jacked up, it makes you not be able to make sound decisions. You can't think, um, you know, clearly or make sound decisions, and so that affects every other area of your life. That's why some people remain in the cycle of being homeless, of being picking up this to you know cope with that. You can't. It, those things have to be in alignment, and so. Um, when I talk about partnering or having someone sponsor someone that is going through depression or addiction, like if you're in AA, you, you have a sponsor, you get partnered with somebody who has been where you are. They're, they're strong enough, you know, in their walk where they can help you. Same thing with sometimes drugs anonymous, you know, if you're doing cocaine, crack, whatever. So, but when it comes to what happens when that individual is is addicted to those things but there are underlying factors like there's a they're severe dep severely depressed because of let's say domestic violence or abandonment issues or you know sexual abuse or something why is it that we don't partner people with other people who have experienced those things because they want to keep mental health like a revolving door people aren't really getting helped and healed they're getting medicated <laughs> and you know learning how to coexist now, coping, coping mechanisms are necessary, but only when you are in a process of transition. It shouldn't be, you know, that shouldn't be the end result. It's not yeah. the end result. So and that's just my my personal take on it. And I know here on this show, we only have a limited amount of time. So there's no way I could go into deep, like extreme detail about every little thing that I have experienced and been through. Because I'm telling you, people will be like, what? <laughs> but at the same time, um, I just think that this these types of conversations need to happen more. Because what are we seeing in society and all over social media and news now? People are killing themselves left and right, you know. People are being addicted to drug, you know, even dying from drug overdoses and stuff left and right. But there are underlying factors. Those things, suicide, drug addiction, depression, all of those things are symptoms. Yep. They're not the root. It's not the bullet. 
if you go in and do the surgery and remove the bullet, all of the symptoms will subside. I, I agree 100% with you. And I've been to a litany of counselors in my life, and I still do counseling to this day because life happens. I might be sober three years, but life still happens, you know, so I, got, I need somebody to talk to. Right. Um, but I've learned that I can't go into a counselor that is, has not suffered from addiction, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and in my special case, I deal specifically with veteran counselors because I, I connect better with somebody that's kind of been where I'm at, right? And, mm -hmm. and they, they understand the lingo. They understand, you know, firefights. They understand watching their best friend get blown up in front of them. They get, they get those concepts. They may not have been through it, but they understand it. Whereas if I go to a regular counselor that's a civilian, they'll look at me and be like, what's wrong? I don't know. You tell me. Like, I can tell you what's wrong, but are you going to tell me how to work through it now? Because you don't understand my what I've been through right. and where I'm at. Absolutely. Which is why I got into peer like peer work. I'm I'm a peer support specialist certified through the state of Alaska, working on mm -hmm. kind of transitioning that down to where I'm at now. Um, but it's it's about it's about using your experience to at, you know with addiction and mental health to kind of kind of, you know, help somebody get to where they need to be, be that, you know, that mentor, that side-by-side -side walker. And, and right. you said it, counseling, you know, uh, psychology now is a revolving door where, where nobody's getting better. Like they're not uh -huh. improving their circumstances or their state of mind. You know, people are just getting medicated and then saying, Hey, come back next week and spend $500. So you can talk to somebody mm -hmm. and get ab absolutely nowhere. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely nowhere. Yes. Yes. The and, and that's why I love this program uh, of, you know, bounce backology. So I, I, I got to think about all of the things that that I had to go through, the practical steps that I had to take, the tools and resources that I that I used to get me to where I am. And you know, and I noticed that there were like five phases and rock bottom, of course, is one. So and I tell people all the time, if you pay attention, when you get to rock bottom and you're flat on your back, if you were to just open your eyes and look around, the only way that you can go is up from there. There is no more bottom that you're already at the bottom. Yeah. So and, you know, then you step into healing. And then you go into preparing for your comeback and then the phase of rebuilding. And then you get to celebrate your, your bounce back. You know, you, 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 you made it to that, to that end. And the more that you utilize the tools that you're going to have to use repeatedly throughout life, which is extraction. So finding yourself a confidant, someone to speak with, speak to, finding you a constructive outlet to release anger, sorrow, things of that sort. Crying is good for everybody. Crying is a form of release. Emotionally, you have to be able to do that. I don't care if you have to go into a room by yourself or if you need to join a class where, you know, you're beating up those little dumb <laughs> those little <laughs> clown dummies or whatever, you're going to box, you know, find a constructive way to release anger, stress, you know, sorrow, those things. And then Yes, get you a uh, enter into a program, you know, some type of program. If it's an addiction, then, you know, you're going to join some type of addiction program. But you also need to make sure that you are partnered with someone who can identify with where you are, 
and who has gone through what you've gone through, who, who has a clear understanding of that. And don't be afraid also to get tidbits from different people. So that's one thing I like about bounce psychology, because even when I bring other people in, they're able to share parts of their story and the things that they did too, because a lot of these programs, when you enter into some of these programs, they're like standard cookie cutter for everybody that doesn't work because everybody's different. Everybody retains information different. Everybody responds differently to even the same situation, you know? So if you have two people that were both, you know, let's say in domestic violence relationships, you know, and they became, you know, depressed and suicidal, then one, you know, one person may be worse than the other. They both experience the exact same thing. They both are depressed. One may be suicidal. One may just be, you know, um, one may develop some type of mental disorder. Like, you know, they maybe have split personalities or something, you know, everybody deals with things differently, but, um, being able to partner with those things and having all of those things working together at once, you should be able to take, I, I would be able to take something that you did, something that like Jay did, something that you did and put it together and all of that together works for me to help me to get to, to from point A to point B. Cause everything that lady J did, I may not be strong enough or strong will to do everything that she did, or it may not work for me. And I may not respond to that. So, but if I take something, you know, a little bit of what Sean did, a little bit of what like, Jay did, a little bit of what Sue did, and Tim did over here. Oh, I can put that together. That'll work. Or I can try that. You know, that will work. So having though all of those components work together, I think are are necessary for each individual. Whenever somebody is trying to transition themselves from a form of addiction, you know, um, a depression and things of that sort, so that they can come out of that. And the more that you utilize those things, the more that you learn the art of forgiveness, the more that you utilize your tools of um, extraction for you to rebuild um, or continue building onto your life as you grow and evolve, the easier it will get. Because it's difficult to forgive and in any, any form of addiction, any form of depression, whatever the case may be, anything concerning mental health, you're gonna have to forgive whether it's yourself or somebody else, that is the key. A lot of us are holding on to things and experiences that are tied to people, which keeps us where we are mentally, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, emotionally, and has us picking up those things to cope with it. So once you learn how to do that, um, and I have, I literally teach people how to do that. And once you learn how to do that and you do it, it becomes like second nature and you don't hold on to things as long. It don't take you six to seven years to get over something or you have this notion in your head, well, they don't deserve that or I don't deserve to, you know, better. Or, I don't deserve to, to live or I don't deserve, you know, yeah. the more that you understand what that's all about, the easier it will get. Absolutely. You know, and it's crazy that you bring up forgiveness um, because I was at this point um late last month where I was just stuck. I was like, I don't know what to do. Right. And, and I felt like I couldn't move forward, couldn't progress. A friend of mine said, the only way to move on to acceptance and to become a higher version of yourself is to forgive. And it shook me to my core because I didn't understand that concept. I was always like, Oh, you know, whatever. So I started working on that forgiveness and I, I forgave myself, forgave the person. 
Um, and after that, it was like, I don't feel anything. I don't feel any regret. I don't feel any, any, I don't feel anxious. I don't feel any of that. And, and so it really, it was just like this release of all the negative energy that I had. Mm-hmm. And so, so when you were talking about forgiveness, I was kind of like, Oh, she understands forgiveness. I like it. <laughs> yeah. That is part of your surgery. So when I talk about, when I talk about the uh, stepping into healing, forgiveness is that first piece. That is part of the surgery. That hurts because a lot of people are like, well, they don't deserve that. You don't know what they did to me. Or you don't know what I did. I can't forgive myself. I'll never forgive myself. Like those things are what keeps you. You can't put a bandaid over a bullet wound. Like it's, it's eventually it's going to get, you know, corroded and it's going to eat up everything and you're going to die period you're going to die whether that be in a physical sense or and let's just be honest depression addiction all of those things can literally kill you physically so uh yeah i teach people you know how not to hold on to those things and especially when it's tied to someone that you feel like a parent or you know a grandparent or a sibling anybody that is that we deem uh, that has to be a part of part of our lives, or that is supposed to love us. It's supposed to, you know, be there. We forget that they are people too, and our parents, for instance, had a life before us. It doesn't justify the things that they did, even though the things that happened to them may contribute to who they are, the decisions that they made, how they treated you, or what they did. It just allows you to gain an understanding, you know, about why they did that or why they said that but you have to accept that you have to accept who they are but you don't have to carry the guilt and shame that is theirs that is theirs to carry you have to understand that they are just a vessel by means by by ways to get you here that's it your purpose and who you are is not tied to them they don't get to dictate that or determine that so um i yes if forgiveness is definitely definitely part of that surgery piece is part of the stepping into healing piece you you you're going to have to forgive people in your lifetime a lot if you are friends with somebody you're going to fall out you're not going to agree all the time you're going to have to forgive each other and move on your kids your, your kids do something to piss you off and you, they know that it was wrong and now they upset because they're, you dis- i mean they disappointed you're disappointed in them because they disappointed you and you're going to have to forgive them and give them a second chance and, and let them build that trust up again. And you're going to have to do that over and over and over and over again in life. And so you might as well learn how to do it and do it correctly and right. So you're not constantly, you know, picking up all these things and then making a mountain out of a molehill. And it's yeah. adding to stress and being depressed because we have to understand that we ourselves, we're going to disappoint people too. You know what I'm saying? We're going to require forgiveness and we have to learn how to sometimes accept the apology that you'll never get. Yes, very much facts, very much facts. So what are you doing now to, to improve your life and make your life more fulfilling? I know you spoke a little bit about some of the things you do. Yes. So now, first and foremost, I'm learning how to put me first because going through everything that I went through, I, I, I used to overgive, overserve, so that other people would feel what I felt. 
I didn't want people to feel unloved, unwanted, uncared for, unsupported. And so I would just do, 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 give, 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 and never, never do that for me. And it put me in a position and which is what led ultimately to my ruptured brain aneurysm. I literally worked myself into the ground trying to do for everybody else, serving the homeless and and having 10 contracts in, in 10 different places, driving here, there and everywhere for all of these young people and their families and going to courts and making sure I was there for my kids and splitting my mother's day with the kids at the jails. So, you know, because if their mothers didn't show up, they I needed to be there for them as well. So my kids shared me with everybody, letting people into our homes, you know, who are homeless and and you know with this media thing supporting businesses and putting people on and providing opportunities i mean it's just a never-ending but nowhere in there was it jacque i literally worked i think three days straight one time and never slept hmm. knowing that it was bad for my blood pressure i had blood pressure issues ever since i had my last child and that caused the brain aneurysm my blood pressure was so high consistently and i literally was dying. I, I wasn't supposed to, I'm not supposed to be here, <laughs> you know, and I have learned that I have to put me first because, um, now I felt guilty in that in these last couple of years, because I literally, uh, felt like I had let my children down because I can't be, a good mother if I'm not here. I can't be a mother at all if I'm not here. And so not taking care of myself put me in a position where, where they were going to have to continue to grow up without me. And my youngest was only nine at the time. So that wasn't fair to them. So I had to apologize to them for that. And I felt so bad. And, and my younger two were there when it happened. So they were traumatized by it. And I had to live with that. I have to live, you know, with putting them through that. So, um, putting me first, learning how to say no, um, understanding that <laughs> I'm not superwoman. I can't save the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I, you know, understanding that I can't save the world. I, I, I know I meant to, you know, meant to help people, but you know, sometimes we get into this um, hero syndrome, if you will, or God, you know, God syndrome. And I'm, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not God. Like I'm only uh, uh, <laughs> I'm only a vessel or a tool to be used to help people. So I had to learn how to navigate that and not feel like I had to be the you know, the person to change or, or make somebody move. I can't do that. That's, that's not my job. So, um, and also, uh, for me, making sure that I don't take on more than I actually am able to. So that's, that's again, learning how to say no and, and just time management. And so still doing everything that I know I'm supposed to be doing with, you know, bounce backology. And, and so now it's available virtually because I can do groups, large groups, instead of going here and speaking to 200 kids, you know, and doing sessions there every week and then driving over here, uh, traveling to this place and, you know, out of town here. And now I'm still going to travel and speak. I still do a lot of, you know, red carpets and media and stuff with, you know, 
uh, um, showcasing businesses and brands or just media coverage and things of that sort and providing a platform for people to have a voice uh, and things of that sort. I had to figure out a way to do things a little bit differently, like more efficiently where I can help more people, but it'd be less tasking on myself. Um, Because the more I take care of me, the more people I can help. And so um, with those things, uh, now I'm able to do, you know, to speak to a lot of different people right from my laptop. So we can do live session. Now it's not the same when you're doing interact like in person, but you can still get that same, you still get the same thing. It's just a tad bit different, (laughs) you know? Just a little bit. Um, Yeah, exactly. And, um, and with speaking, being, uh, being open to speaking again, because I have been like in a shell for like the last year and a half. I've I've had to relearn how to love me all over again or like me all over again with the certain disabilities that I have, certain limitations. I was frustrated. I was literally like grieving the old me. The old me is dead. Like I mm-hmm. I, I have to embrace the new me, and so and being okay with that. And so getting back out to in, into, you know, speaking, whether that be virtually in person or doing shows like this, I haven't done a lot of interviews and where, where I was doing them all the time. So now I'm <laughs> to the point now where I'm like, OK, Lady J, it's time for you to get back, you know, get back out there. And, you know, so because more people need to hear, you know, the stories. Some people need the encouragement. And like I said, just seeing those things. Um, all the time across social media and in the news, if you're an empath like me, it literally like breaks your heart every time that you see it. And it's like, dang, I could have did something. And, and not to mention, like, I do have people who call. I've talked a lot of people down from suicide. People, when I'm, when I'm sharing my story, they'll inbox me, man, I just loved your interview or I loved your live or thank you for sharing or your book was awesome. You know, it helped me. Those things let me know that what I'm doing is needed yeah. and me sharing or, or, or it could just simply be, thank you, lady J for having me on your platform. Thank you for allowing me to join the EO media network. I'm, I'm loving it. You know, things of that sort. I mean, anything to help or support other people. Um, that's what I'm doing. Utilizing, like I said, my, my, my life story, my education, my resources, my tools, and my platform. Absolutely. You know, you said something where you're talking about having the, uh, the God complex. Uh-huh. Uh, I used to, I used to have that. And then I had to step back and, and then people would, would, and I know it came from a place of love and they would say, Oh, you saved me. And I'm like, mm, I didn't save me. You saved you. I said, I, uh-huh. I can't, I can't even save myself. Right. You saved you. I can't save you. Uh-huh. Um, right. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, you know, being able to recognize that we have to save ourselves in order to help other people and, mm-hmm. and take, take the time for ourselves to heal, you know, because life does happen, whether we're, mm-hmm. you know, sober or not, life, life is going to happen. And so taking those bumps and then, and then really um, recovering and, and being the best version of ourselves so we can be better for other people. That's, that's the most, one of the most important things I've seen. What yeah. does self-care look like for you? <clears throat> self-care <laughs> to be honest i'm still trying to find that <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and let me just say it has been 20 years since i have been addicted to pills that's awesome 19 i am 39 this year i'll be 40 this year actually so i am 39 that's been 20 years um 
it's been a little less time for the sex thing, but <laughs> not. Yeah. I mean, it's been it's been a, a while. Uh, more like maybe fifteen years. Fifteen, fourteen or fifteen years, but um, self care for me. So for somebody that's travel, that's constantly traveling, and was constantly on the go. When I had the aneurysm, I literally couldn't do anything. I couldn't move. I couldn't talk. I couldn't. So I finally got had a chance to like just sit and be in my room. And that became my like utopia. <laughs> so now it's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> it's my, that's, that, that's fun to me. I don't ever want to leave. If I could put a kitchen in my room, I would never leave. <laughs> <laughs> I got a bathroom in my suite. There's a little den area, my desk, my bed, my TV, laptop, everything is here. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so um and I'm so used to being in the forefront and in a in a limelight or something that being behind the scenes, oh my God, I just love it. <laughs> so um self-care for me looks like just chilling. <laughs> the bed, you know, Netflix and, and, and sleeping. But honestly, um, doing something once a month that I love to do and finding out, I'm still figuring out what my limits are. So like what I can and can't do anymore. So like, for instance, I love aquariums. I can't go to aquariums anymore. The light literally makes it feel like my head is exploding. Oh, wow. so, so I'm in, literally in tears. Um, so I think it's, I don't know if it's the rays from the light, but I tried that and it was a disaster. You know, mm -hmm. almost left there on a stretcher. <laughs> so I'm still figuring out. I love movies. I can't go to movie theaters. You know, this, the this lighting from the screen is too bright and this, my ears are damaged. So um, I have to do drive-ins instead. You know, control the, the sound and the screen is so far away. So I'm still learning those things that I love to do. So doing something I love to do at least once, once a month and spending time with my children, you know, and uh, going to a spy, you know, or a nail shop or something once or twice a month. That's self-care for me. Um, but and, and taking one day a week to do nothing. So instead of working constantly, well, I can't do that anymore anyway, but working every day, I have to take a day just for me, or at least a half a day, you know, to do absolutely nothing, just rest. Um, so that's what self-care looks like for me. I know a lot of people think it's all about, you know, going shopping or, you know, going to but for me, it's um, being mindful of also, like I said, what I'm doing, because what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, how much of it I'm doing, so I don't overstimulate my, my brain and, don't trigger anything um, so that this thing can stay intact in my head. Right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's what self-care looks like for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's good to hear. I know a lot of people that, you know, when the word self-care comes up, they're like, oh, I do meditation. That's part of your program, dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> calm down. That, that's, that's part of your program. Right, it's not it intentional just for you. Right, 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 right. It, you didn't create yoga. You didn't create meditation. Somebody else did. But come on, what self care look like? But uh, yeah, absolutely. So before we end the show, uh, I always like to ask people, um, what are some words of advice? But uh, from you specifically, what are some words of advice um, that you would give to a young 
mother or a, a young young girl that is struggling through what they're going through, what would you give to them? Oh, one, I would tell them that, as I said before, you are not your circumstance. You are not the things that happen to you. So, and understand that the perspective that you should have on the things that you are dealing with at the moment should be that it is not for you. You are literally being prepared for the people that you are going to encounter on your journey. You're going to be able to share with them the things that you went through, how you got through it, and the tools that you use so you can pass that along. Um, also, that your value and your worth is not tied to any one anybody but you. Before you came into this world, you had a purpose. You are here until you fulfill that purpose. And um, you won't become the person that you were destined to be if you don't go through, you know, some things in life. You have to go through some pain. You can't, you can't talk about being healed if you've never been sick. You can't talk about or help people, you know, um, go through, uh, being healed if you've never gone through any pain, you know? Um, you don't know what it would be like to, <clears throat> to be redirected if you've never been rejected. So everything, every time you hear a no, it's not necessarily no period. It could be no to that or no, not right now or not yet. So just understand that everything that you're going through, everything that you're feeling is temporary learn the lesson, find the lesson in it, learn it, you know, keep it with you and then share it. Don't hold on to it, share it. You're going to come across people in your life that's going to need it. So um, that would be my, yeah, that would be my advice to them that's, that's going through something right now. Um, yeah, you got to, <laughs> Listen, you have to go through some things in life in order to grow. Everything you, you cannot life cannot always be sunshine. The the world, nature doesn't even they it doesn't even operate that way. There's there are four seasons and they are constantly evolving. You're gonna have a season of reaping, you're gonna have a season of sowing, you're gonna have a season of, of testing or pain or sorrow, and then you have a a season of harvest, uh, you know, <clears throat> of of success, and then you're gonna keep doing that over and over again. Absolutely. Wow. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty strong. That, that, that last bit was pretty strong. So thank you. Yeah. I, I needed to hear that. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I remind myself that sometimes. <laughs> right. Right. It's not always going to be sunshine yeah. or rainbows. Mm -mm. Not no. at all. There's, there's going to be some nasty yeah. weather that run, runs through there, but it's going to get better. Absolutely. Right. And I, I tell everybody to, when I end anything, you know, um, after all of the hell you went through, the word through is an indication that you defeated the impossible too. New adversity will come, but overcoming it has already made you unstoppable. The favor over your life incomparable, which gives you the right to think and believe I'm possible. Thank you. Thank you. And Lady J, I want to thank you for sitting here. It's been an absolute honor and pleasure having you on the show. 
Thank you for being here. Thank, Thank you, for you for volunteering your time. I really Thank you appreciate for having it. me. And everybody I really enjoyed you. Oh, uh, I'm glad. I'm glad. I try to be a good host. I, I had a good Monday morning, so like I'm in a great mood. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's been great. And I, I really appreciate you being on here, taking some time to spend with me and hang out with me. I really am. I'm grateful. No problem. And, thank you. And everybody, thank you for sitting here and hanging out with us. Lady J has been an awesome host, and I hope you guys enjoy being here. Lady J, before I shut down the show, where can we find you? All right. So I got about 12 pages of social media. So <laughs> let me just guide you to ladyj.co. Okay. okay. www.ladyj.co is my website. On there, you will be directed to all of my brands, all of my companies. So you just click on each one. It'll take you to their pages, uh, to their websites, and then you can join or link social media pages there. Um, but if you want to follow me personally on social media, you can. I'm on LinkedIn under Lady J. I'm on Instagram under LadyJ.co as well. I am on Facebook under Lady J at Lady J Brand. You can find me there um, or my other page. You can. Um, that's my public figure page. <clears throat> you can also follow me on my personal page at Jacquelinte. It's actually a uh, now it's a public figure page too, but that's J A C Q U I E L Y N N T E. So that's how you can follow my personal pages. But yes, if you go to my website, you can also uh, view what all of the companies are about. You can view what Bounce Backology is about, and you can check out all of the different media that I've been in, interviews and things of that sort. If you click on the media button, so that's where you can follow me. Awesome. I'm definitely going to be checking that out. I'm going to be looking at back, Bounce Back Allergy. I think it's yeah. a pretty cool concept. Yeah, no problem. It's actually, um, so it's going to launch fully in February because, I, of course, everything shut down when I had the aneurysm. So mm -hmm. um, it's going to, not only will the program launch, but the full-fledged um, clothing line, clothing and shoe line will launch as well. So confidence you can wear. That's awesome. <laughs> That's super cool. All right. So once again, everybody, thank you for being here and hanging out with us uh, for this almost hour and 15 minutes. You guys have a very blessed day. And until next time, much love.